welcome to another installment of Visionaries, a podcast that demonstrates you don't need a lot of eyesight in order to be a visionary. I am, as always, your humble correspondent and host. My name is John Steinberg, and I am joined by my tremendously talented co-host who goes by the name of Santino Maoni back again for another great episode of visionaries we're going to start off as we always do with our first segment words to live by and John this week I got to select the quote and the quote I selected comes from Winston Churchill and the quote reads as such success is not final failure is not fatal it is the courage to continue that counts so John when you hear that quote again like we always do we always analyze the quote try to you know, explain what it means to us and what it makes us feel. John, what did you think of the quote? What does it invoke in you? Give me your thoughts. Perseverance. When things are the most difficult, it's very easy in those moments to look away. But as Churchill chides us in this particular excerpt, you got to keep going. Got to keep trying. Missions are important. The focus of one's life, what they can achieve, if they put their mind to it, all of that flies in the face of being scared about things. So last week we talked about Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his, or I guess it was two weeks ago, but this idea of not allowing fear to dictate how it is that we lead our lives. And sometimes success, the ultimate outcome in a given situation is beyond our control. However, what we do have in our power to control is how hard we try and that we try period and keep trying and then try some more and perseverance as Churchill exemplified over the course of his long life and ridiculously illustrious career, he set a standard for folks. And his tenacity comes through in, uh, in this excerpt. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other big thing to note here is that he's really essentially saying that success and failure, and like you said, the final outcome of any situation are not the are not the end all be all. It's not the defining moments of your life. And it's not what defines you as a person. What defines you as a person is your ability to keep getting up after getting knocked down, your ability to continue trying despite whatever outcome occurs in, again, in whatever situation or whatever endeavor you're doing in your life. And it's again, that mindset of perseverance, that mindset of, okay, no matter what, whether I succeed or fail, that isn't the end all be all. The end all be all is that I just try. I continue to keep doing. I continue to keep going. That is really what he's trying to get across in this quote, in this excerpt, whatever you want to call it. And I think it's really motivating. And when I, when I read it, it really stuck with me because there have been times I'm going through my, in my life right now where there are days where, you know what, I may put out an Instagram post for my sports podcast, or I, I do TikTok sports videos. I'll put out a video for a sports TikTok and it does, you know, terrible, you know, in the realm of not getting a lot of views, maybe not getting as many likes as I wanted, whatever the case may be. And those are times where I'm like, you know what? Oh, I'm in my head. I get thoughts saying, screw this. I don't want to do this anymore. I, I, this video is a failure, et cetera. All these negative thoughts. And the whole idea behind this quote is saying, just keep doing it. Just keep making videos, keep making posts, keep producing content. I'm, I'm associating, associating it specifically with, you know, my situations, but that goes for anything, whatever you're doing. It doesn't matter if you, if, if it's a, a success, a failure, like he says, just keep on doing it. That's the message that I really got when I first saw the quote. And that's why I chose it. And coming from like a more literary background, as I do, the landscape of authors, be they poets, novelists, et cetera, et cetera, who did not enjoy success during their actual lifetimes is very long. So this idea of this is what I can control. I can put out the best conceivable version of a podcast possible. I don't have the power to control how many folks listen to it, download it. I can 
promote it, um, do my best to try to talk to the right people, to get the word out there, expose it to more listeners. But at the end of the day, I don't have the ultimate say-so as to how many folks listen to it. But I do have the power to really make something that I can feel proud about unleashing uh, into the world because it's going to be there forever. So Herman Melville has no control over how many people read Moby Dick, what the response is to it. That is beyond his scope, his purview. But what he can do is craft an indisputable masterpiece about a lot of different things that resonates with audiences a hundred plus years after his passing. Yeah, I think that's a great way to close that segment out. We'll move on to our next segment, Handprints Hall of Fame. John, you made the selection this week. Let us know who you chose as the latest inductee for our Handprints Hall of Fame. I wanted to widen the purview of the folks that we enshrine into our Handprints Hall of Fame. So today we are going to be inducting none other than landmark feminist women's rights advocate, journalist, all around Renaissance woman extraordinaire, Gloria Steinem. Steinem was born in 1934, and she charted what would ultimately prove to be one of the most memorable careers in journalism and public advocacy possible. Among her laundry list of achievements, she founded the highly influential feminist magazine, Ms., which has been publishing since 1971. She addressed the first edition of the National Women's Political Caucus with a speech that belongs in the annals of amazing public addresses, where speaking about the women's movement, she said, this really is a revolution. Fighting on behalf of the marginalized and disenfranchised Steinem has made her reputation on the back of helping the disadvantaged and overlooked. Her 2015 memoir, My Life on the Road, is one of the better examples of a memoir from a public figure that you'll be able to come across. Her partnership with figures like Shirley Chisholm uh, Betty Friedan and a number of others has been immensely influential as groups have advocated since the 1970s. So as we like to say, picture Gloria out on Hollywood Boulevard in front of Grauman's Chinese Theater, placing her hands down in the pavement so that everyone can interact with them for all time. Yeah, definitely. I think it was a great selection that you made. And I wanted to just mention, I don't believe you mentioned this um, accomplishment. I wanted to bring it up. She helped to find, uh, found the Women's Action Alliance and she was uh, helping to pioneer National Information Center that specialized in non-sexist, multiracial, excuse me, multiracial children's education. And I think that just everything that she did really, uh, the, the, word, the word that you use, she was I forget, I forget the word you said, but she was just a pioneer of all different aspects. Like you mentioned in the beginning, she's a writer, political activist, a feminist organizer. She's a founder of, of two different magazines. She just put her stamp on so many different aspects of the world and in so many different fields. And I just think it was a great selection just due to that, frankly, of, of how much of an impact she had on so many different areas of life. And I think she is 100% what we can describe as a visionary. And she was a great selection that you made for our Hamperns Hall of Fame this week. I can definitely say that. Um, uh, and for folks that, that want to learn more about uh, Gloria Steinem, there's, of course, the memoir that I mentioned. But then there's also 
a miniseries that aired on Hulu a couple of years back called Mrs. America. It's about the women's movement, but also about the forces that flew against that movement. In the miniseries, uh, Steinem is portrayed by Rose Byrne, and it is a really terrific uh, miniseries. And then there's also not as good as Mrs. America, but there was a biography called The Gloria's released, I believe, two years ago, where Julianne Moore portrays Steinem, and um, so does Alicia Vikander at different ages over the course of her life. So those are out there if you'd like to uh, do a bit of a deeper dive on our latest inductee into the Handprints Hall of Fame. That was a great way to close that segment out, John. We'll move on to our next segment, Profiles and Courage, where today we actually are bringing on the founder of Ability Media, the organization that I interned for in the spring semester at Quinnipiac, Christopher Rausch. He is the Dean of School of Communications and, like I mentioned, the founder of Ability Media. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, Santino. Thanks, John. Great to be here. All right. So, Chris, the first question I want to ask to you Really more of just to kind of introduce our audience to Ability Media. We referenced it before in some of our previous conversations, but just to give our audience an overview as to what Ability Media is and what the goal of the organization is. Sure. So what Ability Media is, is it's a project here at the Quinnipiac University School of Communications, and it's involving students from across our curriculum. PR students, ad students, graphic design students, journalism students, film students media studies students. And what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish with Ability Media is to shed light on the fact that the media world, journalism, film, TV, they don't do a good job of fairly representing what's going on in the disability community around the country. There are no full-time reporters covering disability, for example, at the Washington Post or NBC News. And if you look at studies about film and TV shows, only about 5% of characters in films and in TV shows have disabilities. And sometimes even the actors who portray those characters don't have the disabilities themselves. They're just an actor playing uh, whoever is the character that has a disability. And this is despite the fact that about 26% of the U.S. population identifies uh, as having some form of disability. And so I'm a big believer in the fact that higher education needs to look at society's problems and try and address them. So shortly after I got here to, to Quinnipiac, this was, this was something that, that I decided that I, I'd, I'd like for the school to focus on. Uh, I've, I've had uh, a son, uh, or I've got a son who's got some learning disabilities uh, and who struggled, frankly, uh, with those learning disabilities when, when he was growing up. And, and so, um, you know, I, I have some personal uh, experience with that. But, you know, it's, it's really just all about telling the stories and, and making sure that society is aware uh, that this is a fairly large part of the U.S. population, and they really are underrepresented when it comes to media. You mentioned your son who grew up with learning disabilities, and obviously I'm sure that was that fueled part of the inspiration for uh, creating this organization. Was there anything else uh, outside of that that really drove you to want to make this as prominent as it can be within uh, Quinnipiac University? Well, I mean, increasingly Quinnipiac has uh, undergraduate students with disabilities. You know, the first year we did Ability Media, I think uh, six out of the 12 students who were involved with disability had either a physical disability or, or some form of learning disability. And, and they, they didn't really have an outlet uh, for themselves uh, in terms of student media here on campus. Uh, so that, to me, that was another impetus uh, to do this. And, and then I would say the, the other impetus was we have students who do not have any sort of disability who work on ability media. And I think it's really educational for them, eye-opening uh, for them uh, to work with students uh, who have disabilities and to see 
hey, there's a there's a whole big world out there of of students who who have a disability, uh, but they're just like me and you. They're they're not any different. Um, you know, they they work just as hard in the classroom. They they want to be communications professionals when they when they graduate from college. Uh, and so I think it's I think it's also been very ed- educational and helpful uh, for our students who don't have disabilities. Absolutely. And as one of those students who joined you guys as an intern in uh, in, in the spring semester of 20, 2021 or excuse me, 2022, the thing that I found, like you said, very educational about it was being able to kind of experience almost not firsthand, but through the eyes of Dave Stevens, who's a professional in residence for the organization, being able to see how he had to operate on a day-to-day basis, working at Radio Row at the Super Bowl, and just in covering events in general of how he had to go about doing his job. And it was very insightful to be able to work with him and people like John and so many others, and just being exposed to that world that frankly, before joining the organization, I had never been exposed to before, really had any prior knowledge of. So in terms of that, I believe building media really is achieving that goal of educating people such as myself about the disabled community, about people with disabilities and for people who have never experienced it before. John, if you had any more questions to ask, you can go ahead. Absolutely. Uh, Chris, one of the great things uh, that I have been able to learn is that Ability Media uh, is really one of the first in this progressive kind of movement as those with disabilities and those in marginalized communities gain more and more acceptance in broad circles in society and in all spheres of public life. How has the feedback been since establishing Ability Media? Uh, what has, um, what have some of the tangible results been, feedback that you've heard and maybe anecdotes from students or those that have participated in the program uh, that you might be able to share with our audience? That's a great question, John. I mean, I think Santino said it very well and that it's, it's been eye-opening uh, for a lot of students who don't have disabilities. Uh, and, and that's been gratifying. That's been, a, that's been a great kind of response. I think the other really, to me, important response is the students who have worked on ability media who do have uh, a disability, a learning disability or a physical disability, it's given them the confidence to realize, hey, I can actually have a career in communications. I can go work for a radio station or a TV station or, or a TV show. You know, I, th- I think there's this perception out in the world that because somebody has a disability, they can't do the job that somebody who doesn't have a disability does. And, and I think we all know that that's not correct. And I, I think to me, the, the greatest response has been the students who do have a disability realizing I can, I can do this. I, I can uh, have a career in communications. And, and it's, it's really helped build the confidence uh, um, in, in them to, to know that they're going to, to be able to, to hit the ground running uh, when they graduate. I, I would say the other, to me, big response or big kind of gratification thing is, is hearing from people across Quinnipiac or, or from across the community just about how cool they think Ability Media is. We, we went up to the, the Hartford Yard Goats minor league game this spring and, and was doing some coverage about how they hire people with disabilities. And, and then some of the students went back a couple of weeks later and there was, uh, there was somebody there that we'd actually done a story on uh, earlier in the semester. And he came up to her and said, hey, aren't you with Ability Media? You guys do a great job. And that was just you know, so gratifying for that student to hear that we are making a difference uh, in, in people's lives. And, and we are trying to, to open the eyes of society that, uh, hey, you need to be paying attention to this pretty large population. Absolutely. So important, the work that everyone at Ability Media is doing uh, to help out the disabled, disadvantaged folks uh, within the community. So looking ahead a bit, 
what going forward are some things that Ability Media is going to be up to? Just uh, looking ahead to the future, what's in store for Ability Media? You know, to the, to me, the the big thing, there, there's a couple of big things that, that I'm kind of working on right now as we start thinking about what Ability Media is going to do in 22-23. Number one is I'd, I'd really like to develop some relationships with mainstream media organizations here in Connecticut and, and maybe just regionally in New England so that they'll start covering or they'll start, they'll start running ability media content on their websites or, or in print or, or however they distribute their content. I think that if we can get some of those lined up, that'll be a big breakthrough with ability media and that'll really raise awareness with ability media. You know, the other thing that I'm, I'm constantly thinking about and constantly trying to accomplish with Ability Media is, is fundraising. And that is getting foundations, other people in this, this field uh, to, to give us some money to really ramp up our operations. You know, we're, we're, for lack of a better term right now, kind of a shoestring operation in, in that, for example, you know, I edit all of the stories that go on the Ability Media website. Well, I, I, I've got a full-time job being Dean of the School of Communications. Um, it'd be really nice, I think, if we had the money to hire a full-time person, for example, to actually run, quote-unquote, the news operation of Ability Media and, and who really could spend more time with the student reporters and, and with the studio, st- uh, student video journalists working on their stories, because I, I really just don't have the bandwidth some days, as Santino knows, to, to really sit down with the students and say, hey, I really liked what you did here with this part of the story, but this is what you need to do uh, to, to improve this story or to, to make it better. You know, I, I, I really think that, that being able to like hire some professionals to be able to work with the students on a, on a more regular basis would really be a giant step forward. Yeah, uh, and actually last week we had the pleasure of speaking with Allison Burdett from the Wayfinder Family Services Organization, and she echoed much in the same vein as uh, as you're talking about. So uh, if you are listening to this out there and you are interested in getting involved, contributing, helping out in any way that you can, uh, Chris, is there a good way for audience members to uh, to learn more about Ability Media, how they might be able to help and contribute? Sure. I mean, we, we've got the website, which is abilitymediagroup.com uh, that you can go to. There's actually a donation button uh, on uh, the abilitymediagroup.com website, or they could just contact me directly. I mean, I'm uh, always available. My email address is uh, uh, christopher.roush, R-O-U-S-H, at Quinnipiac dot edu uh, always willing to talk to people about ability media uh, because I'm very passionate about this it's great it's great definitely and we really appreciate you coming on the show and again we've John and I have both referenced it a few times where we'll kind of we'll, we'll talk about it we've had actually some members on Effie Mia Nicolakis she came on the show and talked about her role and just why ability media is important to her and just you know really there should be more why there should be more organizations like ability media frankly that we shouldn't be the only one that's out there really trying to promote this and really highlight the the under underrepresentation that this the disabled community experiences within media. So we referenced it before. We appreciate you coming on the show as the founder, really kind of just shedding more light on why it's so important and why it's such a great organization to have. So we appreciate you coming on the show and thanks so much. Thank you guys. I really appreciate what you do with the Visionaries podcast. It's it's a really cool thing. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you, Chris Rouse, so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It meant a lot to hear, again, just your in, your personal anecdotes and really the inspiration behind the creation of Ability Media and then kind of just giving us a little insight into the future, giving our listeners a little glimpse as to what's hope, hopefully to come for Ability Media. John, just to get your thoughts, again, obviously, you know, I've worked for the organization. I currently work for them now. We had a few other members on the show before. What do you like so much about Ability Media and why do you think it's important to have organizations such as that one? There's a need for Ability Media. 
folks do need the education, there's a great chasm between what we would like people to know and what they actually know. So Ability Media specializes not only in educating a wider audience, but providing enormously beneficial insight from those afflicted with various disabilities and ailments, but then the, those that are learning about them uh, in real time. This is something the world needs, uh, should be a public resource, a utility, as it were, in the way that folks learn about the history of the United States, the history of the world, all of these different historical periods, it's also, I don't know, if, yeah, it is. It's equally as important for people to become familiar with the challenges and obstacles that other human beings have to overcome. And I salute Chris for being a visionary himself as he was the one who created this phenomenal network uh, that we are very thankful to be a part of. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, like I, like I mentioned during the interview, I think that a big part of what Ability Media has done for me, regardless of just the opportunities it's provided me to do, you know, coverage of different events, like the Super Bowl we've talked about and so many other things, it's really just educated me. Because like I said, before joining this organization, before even doing this podcast with you, I had very little to none, to, sorry, not to none, to no exposure um, of the disabled community. And I really didn't have any knowledge or experience of what it was like for, for people such as yourself and Dave Stevens and so many others of how they had to go through life. And I've learned a ton from being exposed to all of you guys and just this world in general. And I'm thankful that I've been able to have those experiences. And I'm thankful that Chris came on the show today and really did enlighten our audience and just really help me, you and everybody listening to learn just a little bit more about what this organization has to offer. But yeah, so that being said, we'll move on to our next segment, respect and representation in the media. John, you made the selection this week. Which piece of um, a movie, TV show, whatever it was, what are we going to be looking at today? I thought it fitting for us to discuss the Academy Award winning production, CODA. This film took the Academy Awards by storm. It emerged, so there's always this component of quote-unquote award season when producers, the people, I mean, I live in Los Angeles, I've had exposure to some of this, so indulge me for a second. There's yeah. this, uh, it's called award season, where producers, agents, folks that work at the studios, lobby voters, people in the academy, because nominations, Academy Award nominations, have a great impact on the bottom line of the films that are nominated. So at the outset of, quote unquote, the award season, CODA was a dark horse. And slowly but surely, as more and more people saw it, this being a film that is exclusively broadcast uh, through Apple, you can only watch it on the Apple streaming service. As more and more people saw it, more and more folks were charmed by it, swept away by its powerful narrative. And ultimately, it became kind of the little film that could. This independent movie. Now, it did sell at the Sundance Film Festival for a record $25 million, but that has no bearing on how it's going to be received by an audience when it's actually being put out into the world. So it did become kind of this little film that could ultimately, as I mentioned, taking home the coveted statue for best picture. It also garnered supporting actor awards for Troy Kotzer, as well as an adapted screenplay trophy for Sean Hader, the film's writer and director. So here we get the story of Ruby, who is the only member of her immediate family that 
has the ability to hear C uh, Coda being an acronym for child of deaf adults, uh, the title of the film. And she wants to be a singer. She's got a great deal of talent and that is what she would like to do with her life. But she comes from a blue collar background. I believe it's in the Gloucester neighborhood of New England and Massachusetts where her family have a fishing business and she's expected to continue on in that vein. But as the movie progresses and we learn more and more about Ruby, the various members of her family, her singing and the way that it inspires not only the deaf members of her family, but the larger community proves to be the thing that gets her to the next step in her life. So what were your thoughts on, on CODA? Was it the first time that you'd seen it uh, when I mentioned it? It was not, it was obviously not the first time I had heard of it because I watched the Academy Awards when I was in LA during the spring semester. I watched it with all my friends and we were all kind of taken aback a little bit with how much recognition it was getting and how many awards it was actually winning. Cause we were, we had heard of it, but we were, just again, because there were, there were movies like Dune and so many other ones, so many other great movies that we were like, eh, well, those will probably um, take the cake over CODA, if you want to say it like that. But yeah, CODA really came out and shocked a lot of us with how many awards it won. And I really, I did enjoy the film. And I think one of the important things about it, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but the, the actor that won, um, the actor that won Best Supporting Actor, he is actually, he, he is um, deaf in real life, correct? That, uh-huh yes yeah. i think that's probably the best thing about this movie um or the thing that i took away is just being one of as being one of the best things because they didn't hire as as chris had mentioned in the interview he had said about how in a majority of movies tv shows just roles in in um in hollywood in general a lot of times they'll hire actors who don't suffer from the disability itself and they will portray those characters who do suffer from a disability, whether it's blindness, whether it's being deaf, whatever the case may be. I think it was very empowering to see an actor not only just portray the role of one of the parents in the film, but then get recognized for his, you know, great work in the film and to win an award for it. And that really just really gave recognition to the disabled community and people who suffer from anything like that, again, whether it's blindness, whether it's being deaf, what, again, whatever it may be. I think that the recognition that he got and the recognition the movie itself got as a whole really, really did take one, take, take a massive leap and a massive step in shining light on the disabled community and showing what they can do, that they're, legit, they're just like everybody else. How Chris was saying, I keep referencing the interview, but he was making all these points that they're just like everybody else. There really is no difference. They can do everything that somebody without a disability can do. And that was really proven by this film. And that I think that's really not even just about the film itself, more so just about what the film means and kind of what it represents going forward. Maybe we'll see more movies like this and more directors and writers bringing in actors who do really live with the disability that's being portrayed in the film. So I think that this is really a, a huge stepping stone going forward for the movie industry and just the media industry in general, in my opinion. So I think it's, uh, it's important to note here that Marley Matlin, who a star in her own right, she was famously in another Academy Award winning film from the 1980s, Children of a Lesser God. Marley Matlin has had a lengthy illustrious career in her own right. And when she was enlisted to participate in the project, the director, Sean Hader, initially wanted to cast other members in the ensemble with actors that were not deaf. And Marley Matlin refused. She said, you know, if you do that, I will drop out of the project. So it compelled Sean Hader to reconsider her initial stance and that's what led to the casting of the other members of the family who get a ton of screen time here and it's not something that we see often we've discussed movies like see no evil hear no evil with 
Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. At First Sight, Val Kilmer, Mira Sorvino. The historical canon with respect to filmmaking and those with disabilities, this hasn't happened a lot. Most of the time, it is the case where you bring in actors that don't have the disability themselves, but in theory, they can learn it and portray it effectively. One of the great things about CODA is it didn't do that. It cast members of the deaf community in major roles. And they were terrific in those roles to the point where Troy Kotzer received the Academy Award for his supporting performance. And whether it ignites a trend for what we see in the future, for the months and years to come, we'll have to see. But if nothing else, the mere fact that CODA won the Academy Award for Best Picture, as you said, does represent something magnificent in the evolution of how disabled folks have been treated on screen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, that's the biggest thing I took away because obviously the movie itself, it was very well made. It was a great movie and it deserved, it deserved to win um, Best Picture, in my opinion. But again, it was just the fact that now, and like you said, we may not see a trend from this. Maybe we will. We don't, we can't foresee that obviously, but I can for certain say I'd love to see a trend going forward that kind of um, follows the path of CODA and does does the same thing that they did where let's say we see a movie that again is portraying a blind character. We get an actor who actually is blind. Maybe we can get something like that where it it can go into other different disabilities that other people have and we can see it kind of spread down the line. So yes, I think it's safe to say that you feel the same way that we do hope to see this going forward in movies, TV shows, whatever the case may be, but take it for what it is that this was an inspiring and a truly great moment to see them on stage and to see them getting recognized for their great work in this movie. And I think it was a great choice to um, pick for uh, respect and representation in the media, because this is really the definition of representation in the media. They were fully represented. The, the, The deaf community was represented through this movie and they were recognized. It was almost like it was a win for the entire deaf community, at least from an outside perspective of how I viewed it. It felt like a win for the entire deaf community, the entire disabled community, when this movie won that award and so many others, at least from my point of view. I don't know about yours, but that's kind of how I viewed it. Yeah, and another thing I wanted to bring up in this conversation is the release of the film wasn't met with universal approval. There were folks in some corners of the disabled community that objected to certain elements that dealt with deafness in the film. Uh, There are a couple of examples, certain scenes, things that were depicted on screen that folks took issue with. And ultimately, this is going to dovetail into our final segment, but there's no purity test, if you will. There's no specific litmus test. In other words, there's no rule book, blue book, set of guidelines for how something should be depicted. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It really doesn't. As I stated, the fact that this movie won Best Picture is kind of the takeaway point and kind of points one, two, and three about it. So that in 50 years, when people are studying, oh, I want to go back and watch every single movie that won Best Picture in the history of the Oscars, they will look upon this film as perhaps a turning point. And they'll look past maybe a couple of moments where the filmmakers didn't get it 100%. And there's... There's something extremely valuable to a movie like this being made and the success that it garnered, where even if there were a couple of imperfections about it, 
mm, those can be overlooked. The yeah. uh, ends kind of justify the means, in my opinion. Um, and when we look at this film, as I said, in a number of years, I'm not sure if folks will cling to, oh, mm, that specific moment wasn't perfect. And oh, I don't know if that is 100% how that would have actually played out in real life. They did the best, I think, that they could. And uh, the film has had a monumental impact on society. Definitely. I 100% agree with you. Final segment of the episode, as we always like to end off, we close with connecting the dots where John will regale us with a story, personal experience from his life. John, what are you going to be sharing with us today? Well, inspired by the words to live by segment from the show where we looked at a quote from Winston Churchill, the discussion we just had about CODA. I wanted to tell our audience a story that illustrates that perfection should not be the ultimate aspiration uh, for how folks within the disabled community should be uh, treated and regarded. When I was a teenager, I really noticed the effects of retinitis pigmentosa, but no more so than what would happen at night. Night vision is really the first thing to go uh, in cases of retinitis pigmentosa. And before I was diagnosed, I didn't know how to discuss my condition with friends and they didn't know how to receive it. They didn't know how to talk about it either. So there was this reoccurring joke, I guess you could say, where one of my best friends, he was just at my wedding, uh, we're still very close, he would tell me that I needed to get LASIK surgery and he would kind of joke about it. He'd say, you need to get LASIK, get LASIK. Why haven't you gotten LASIK yet? And I didn't know what to say at the time. I just like, man, I, I, I don't think LASIK would do anything for it, but I didn't know for sure because I hadn't obtained an official diagnosis. And then it was maybe seven or eight years later when I was taking introductory classes at the Braille Institute in Anaheim. And I was invited to bring friends, family members to a night that was designed for that. It was a, a big old friends and family members of students evening. And so I invited this friend and a couple of others. And before the evening dispersed, we did have the conversation where I brought up, man, remember how you used to sort of tease me about you need to get LASIK and, and he felt so awful. He really did. And I could empathize. I didn't know the extent of the condition at the time. I didn't have the information, didn't have the education as it were. And during that evening, my friends were able to, have a meal uh, using blindfolds um, and using blindfolds, they were instructed as to how to properly use a cane. There were a number of things uh, that they were able to experience to better parallel uh, the experience of the visually impaired. So this idea of, is it perfection we seek? No, my friend didn't know that that reoccurring sort of teasing me about getting LASIK surgery would ultimately prove um, to kind of land the way that it did. He just didn't know. And I don't think um, that he could be blamed for not knowing because I didn't know. And without the education, what could we expect of folks? People are doing the very best they can with the information at their disposal at the time. So when we talk about folks like Winston Churchill or Gloria Steinem or the filmmaker uh, Sean Hader behind CODA initially wanting to cast actors uh, who were not deaf, I think we need to give people a little bit of a break. So rather than focus on the imperialism that Winston Churchill would espouse or maybe his feelings 
on issues of the day that haven't aged all that well, we shouldn't castigate him for all of that. We need to remember that was a guy who was born in 1874. We're 125 years away from the iPhone at that point. It's impossible to compare 2022 to the late 19th century. It just is. So we don't need this measuring stick that aims for perfection. We do the very best we can. We try to educate. We try to better ourselves. And in the end, we try to put out the best version of ourselves into the world. And it's only through education uh, that we can do that. So I thought when, and it was kind of fitting that our interview with Chris, he touched upon the role of disability in movies, television shows, etc., and how traditionally it hasn't been done that well. Well, that doesn't mean it can't get better in the future. That doesn't mean that everyone involved with productions like Your Scent of a Woman's, a number of others, that their hearts weren't in the right place, that their intentions were not in the absolute right place. So this idea of there being a purity test, you have to be 100% on board or you're not on board at all. I'd like to dispel that. And let's give people a break. People are doing the best they can. As my friend told me on that night when he felt so bad about joking on the subject of retinitis pigmentosa. I think that's a great sentiment, John. And I think like the example you used was pretty, was, was really great because your friend didn't know, and he didn't have all the information to be able to know that that would be offensive or maybe a little bit hurtful or not, not in the best taste. And I'm sure, you know, as him being your friend, as him being close with you and as somebody who, you know, was at your wedding, even now, all these years later, he's somebody who, if he had had all the information, if he had known exactly what was going on, he would not have then purposefully tried to make that joke and make you feel uncomfortable or try, you know what I mean? He would not have and I'm speaking again from an outside perspective, not knowing him, but just the way that the way you told the story, the way you talked about him, I do not feel that he's somebody who would have then still purposely tried to make a joke or poke fun or tease while knowing all the information. If I correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I just think it's a great example that you use to kind of highlight your point. Yeah, no, he, he didn't, he didn't know. And definitely he wouldn't make a, uh, he wouldn't say something like that today with the education that yeah, no he's one, had on the yeah. subject by virtue of just being my friend. But you know, I, a certain type of person would have pocketed that remark and reflected upon it and probably talked themselves into, Hey, mm, I don't know if I want to be friends with this person anymore. This person said something hurtful and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, counting the amount of years that he and I had been friends and our relationship, uh, I gave him a pass because he didn't know. And I didn't feel that I could in good conscience alienate him for something that he just didn't have the education on. Um, and as I mentioned, yeah, he was at my wedding. He was at my engagement party. We're still great friends. And as opposed to just excavating him from my life, I chose to look forward and keep on moving. Yeah. And I think a point that all, all listeners could take is sometimes you, you, you have to look at situations from the perspective that John did kind of take a step back and say, all right, well, listen, was it the nicest comment or was it the nicest thing this person did to me? No, it wasn't. But take a step back, look at it from the perspective of, did he have all the information kind of was was he educated and sometimes like john said you have to look at it from that perspective and sometimes give people a second chance know that people after becoming educated after knowing all the information can do better and you don't always have to just chastise somebody off of their first mistakes or decisions that they made that were not the correct ones and i again i've never personally experienced that in terms of having 
in terms of, in terms of having somebody come up to me and say something about me or to me about a subject that I was very, that was, you know, near and dear to my heart and they were uneducated about it. But I have had instances where I've been on the other end of it. I've been in your friend's situation where I have made a comment, made a remark to, 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 to friends of mine that I've had in high school throughout my life, things I've said that I wish I could take back. And, and I've had to apologize to them and say, listen, Hey, I, wish that I would have known and wish I would have been more educated enough to not make that remark. I can tell you that if I had been educated and I had known more about the situation, I would never have said that because I'm the kind of person that I am. And I've had to learn from those instances. And I think that's the overarching point that John's trying to make, at least from my takeaway is that you may make mistakes that may happen to you in your life, but you can very easily, if you're surrounded by good people, be given a second chance like John did with his friend and be able to be able to make amends for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So important to take everything into account, to take context into account, to take history into account. Events don't happen within a vacuum. So be mindful. That's really what we preach yeah. here on every single episode of visionaries. Just be thoughtful, be mindful, do the very best, that you can. Definitely. That's a great way to close out this episode. I think a lot of the segments we had today kind of tied in together. The interview with Chris, Chris Roush, the uh, respect and representation in the media, the words to live by, and even the connecting the dots in the final segment, everything kind of tied in together. And I kind of like that theme almost for this, uh, for this episode of visionaries, but that'll do it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, we are on Instagram at visionaries underscore podcast. We post every week notifying you guys when the episode is out on Spotify and Apple podcasts for you all to listen to. Uh, if you want to send us a DM, anything, any comments, concerns, anything you want to let us know, feel free to go ahead and do that. We appreciate you guys listening to another great episode of visionaries and we will see you guys next time. Yeah. Talk soon.